Hello and welcome to the Mostly Erlang podcast, episode number five. And today we're going to discuss when you should not use Erlang. We obviously all love Erlang and use it very when we can and when it's appropriate. But with like with any technology and toolset, there are times when it's not appropriate for one reason or another. So well, let's talk about it and um, sort of understand why that is and you know, use the best tools for the job. So with us today, we have Brian Hunter. Uh, Brian, can you introduce yourself? Oh, uh, you bet. So I'm Brian Hunter. I'm partner and software developer at Firefly Logic. We're a Nashville-based geek-run software firm. We do uh, build sort of products and skunkworks projects for companies, partly in the .NET, uh, C-sharp, F-sharp, in that area, and then then on for the front mobile cross-platform mobile native development there, and then uh, we have this crazy thing of Erlang as this uh, as this other complement in that in that toolbox. And, and so, oh, go ahead. Oh, and so that's uh, that's kind of what I do day to day. And we have Justin Sheehy. Justin, introduce, can you introduce yourself again? Hi, I'm from Basho. We make a whole bunch of software like React and Web Machine and other things. Uh, most of it's open source and most of it's in Erlang, but that most part is, I guess, what we'll talk about today. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So, you know, the question is, when does it make sense to not use Erlang? Um, and when is, you know, a, another tool better for the job and why? Uh, the way I see it, there's sort of four general categories of why you would not want to use Erlang. And I figure we just go about them in, in some sort of order. So first is the language, the language of Erlang itself. You know, when when would the language itself be sort of the impediment? Uh, I, I was uh, awfully curious by the kind of lead-in from, from Justin there. Uh, uh, maybe we hit this at the end but uh, or later on, but uh, I, I think a, a great one is to see on those, those – that percentage of things at Basho that you all are not writing in, in Erlang, kind of the logic and the reasons behind that. But uh, 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 for the first question of, like, uh, where does the language bump up? Uh, this is the primary thing uh, when I'm not using Erlang in projects. It comes down to, uh, I believe this is probably the case for a lot of folks that are not in centers like Boston or New York or Chicago uh, or San Francisco is that you look around and the the pool of developers. Uh, so if you're if it's a different thing if you're a full time employee and you can get your uh, team like up and uh, interested in learning Erlang and you, you know you're going to be there for the long haul. But as uh, if you're coming in and building a product to basically drop for a team to then maintain it, uh, you you have to really look at the the ecosystem <laughs> and uh, decide if it's a responsible thing. Um, I've worked on projects like see four years ago uh hit a, a, an app that there's a there's a piece of it that was a perfect use of erlang but there was no way i could responsibly introduce it uh but at that time nashville uh i was unaware of any other erlang developer in nashville and uh, so that that had an impact on me and so i spent a lot of time actually trying to remedy that problem i realized that erlang was the right solution for a lot of problems but, you know, the ecosystem wasn't, uh, didn't jive with it. There weren't enough people that actually knew 
the language or there weren't any people who used the language Erlang. And so started uh, uh, reaching out and trying to find people that are interested in functional programming and doing a lot of uh, speaking at conferences and stuff basically to correct that, uh, these re- regional conferences. And so uh, we're, we're building an ecosystem now. So th- that initial thing about the language, I think that's the primary thing there. It's also, uh, in this case, it's not so much the language. There's a problem with the language except for the fact that people just don't know it. You know, the language itself is is great or would be if you, you know, had people who... Uh, okay, I see what you're saying specifically right. so about syntax. And, it's not the syntax okay. and the semantics. It's the, it's the people, um, which is usually <laughs> the big, a bigger problem. Uh, it's it's really interesting, though, Brian, because the, the talent pool argument... It's funny when you say it from the point of view of a, you know, a consulting or contracting uh, organization like like you've done. I think it makes tons of sense, right? Because you can't responsibly drop software on someone else to maintain it when they don't have the skill base to maintain it. But the the funny thing is, I think that same argument gets brought up along a lot around companies, uh, you know, like ours that are building software that. We intend to maintain ourselves that we're not just, you know, going to write and walk away from. And in those cases, I actually don't think the argument makes any sense. I, I actually got told by uh, a guy who runs a large uh, database department inside a large company who does everything in Java recently that, um, you know, it's clearly a, a hiring problem for us, Basho, that we use Erlang instead of choosing Java like he did because there's all these Java programmers out there. <laughs> and, and and I explained that you know it's actually for us been a hiring benefit, right? Yes. And that including people that both have just learned Erlang but are already good programmers in another sense, and in some cases, some of our best engineers hadn't used Erlang before, right? I'm not interested in hiring an Erlang engineer as much as I am having people around that are good at solving whole classes of problems. The funniest thing about that conversation was at the end of it, he asked me if I uh, knew any good job candidates I could send his way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you find somebody who's a good programmer, especially if they've done a, any functional programming in sort of any language, be it, you know, Haskell or Lisp or OCaml or whatever, and you, you know, hit them with Erlang, they'll be able to learn it. You know, it, you know obviously they're not going to be as productive on day one as they will be six months in, but... Um, it's not that hard syntactically or semantically a language. Yeah, it's a pretty small, simple language compared to a lot of what's in the mainstream today. So, you know, I, I think that in that sense, I'm not sure that the language itself um, has reasons to not use it. Now, it's different from the, the particular social reason that Brian brought up that I think in a contracting scenario is entirely valid. You can't give someone code for them to maintain you know, and then surprise them with having to learn new skills to maintain it. Right. But that's that's a bit subtler. I mean, certainly, if you you were to do that, you'd need to before you write, you know, more, you know, one line of code, you need to sort of have some very explicit conversations with them of the okay, we think the great tool for, that this tool set is ideal for the job because of X Y Z. You know, but you may have these problems. Do you still want, you know? Do you want us to go this way or that way? Um, and that's, you know, a conversation. Right. So, Zach, you said that, Zach, you said that there were four oh, so I had categories you were thinking of. I was, I'm, I'm curious, what, what, I'm just curious what those are so that we can, you know, okay, so, think about the categories. I had a different way of lining it up, and I'd like to see if it matches. Okay, so this first is the language. 
Um, the second is the ru- the runtime of you know the standard Beam interpreter. Uh, the third is community, both your local community and oh. um, you know sort of the global community. And the fourth is your team. Um, you know, if you have a team of people who are all experts in something else, then you know maybe that makes more. You know, if you've got a team of Ruby guys, you know, using Ruby might make a certain degree of sense. I, uh, I guess it, then on, on just pure syntax and qualities of the language, uh, uh, this is probably more of a, a, a canary in the coal mine kind of thing about your team. But if you look around and there's uh, and people hold their nose at the syntax and they uh, and and they're so delicate they can't be, <laughs> yeah, you know that that the look of Erlang, uh, you know, uh, terrifies them. I think that tells something about your team and and the kind of people that you're around. Uh, uh, but I, I and would maybe make you think it's time to to, to clean house rather than uh, or to to jump ship or you know something along that line rather than that there's actually a problem with the syntax. Uh, right. It's oh, yeah. you know yeah syn- I, I couldn't agree more. Oh, I agree too. I mean the other thing, sorry, and, the flip side of that though is that. There are some problems that, you know, some types of problems that sort of scream out for a specific language. Obviously, anything involving concurrency or fault tolerance screams for Erlang. Um, you know, if I had to, if somebody handed me, you know, a gigabyte of text files and said, go parse these, I'm probably reaching for Perl or awk or something. Well, I, I would challenge that, actually. Uh, like, I've uh, some of the, the, the biggest wins I had uh, uh, have been... In places that were outside of sweet spots. So, uh, a thing that we, that we do is sometimes companies will, they'll be, uh, they'll be doing .NET development and they'll be bumping into like high load and things like that. And what they kind of just want us around, they'll ask me to come in just because they want peace of mind. <laughs> they, they want, uh, they want to have a sense of like, okay, we're, we're about to start this project. We're expecting a hundred million transactions a day to roll through this. We're, we're, pa- we're parsing banking, uh, ACH transactions, uh, is this, is this story. And so, uh, they're basically saying we don't want to be reinventing the early runtime system. They don't want to be in violation of Verding's, uh, first rule, you know, uh, and so they just want wisdom, but, this, there's obvious things around concurrency, distribution, and reliability that I think that they would spot, and that's why they a lot of times reach out is they've they've read enough to see that. But funny enough, in ACH transactions, you're talking about just massive text files that are okay. that you're parsing through and ripping through. And Erlang's pattern matching is brilliant at this. Uh, it, I think it's a funny thing that uh, it goes unchallenged a lot of times when people say Erlang's terrible at strings, and and this this sort of tired tired argument that you hear that uh, people oh we can't do that it's, it has strings in it <laughs> or there's textual so, data and it's just just maddening because you like you you pull in you use binary you use the bit syntax and and you've got this thing where you can capture and do just incredibly powerful things declaratively against so, uh, so hang uh on for, formats. Hang on for a second guys i i could agree all day and we could talk about how erlang is just fine at strings and erlang <laughs> syntax is good and i agree with those things right i use a heck of a lot of erlang but we, we shouldn't make this, you know, the subject of this be a fake out, right? Right, no, you're absolutely correct. So you, know, you were talking about concurrency just now, and we look at Erlang a lot for concurrency, but, you know, one of the sort of sad truths here is if it comes to something like high performance, comes with the language, concurrency-friendly data structures, Java is way ahead of Erlang there, right? Look at the standard, you know, JUC, 
uh, data structures in terms of really great implementations of really concurrency-friendly data structures that you can share safely across concurrent actors. And it doesn't matter here whether that actor looks like a thread or a process or whatever. Erlang doesn't actually have something that holds a candle to that today. And if you want, if your application is really all going to be about wrapping up those kinds of data structures, which you, turns out a bunch of applications look that way, um, you can actually get better concurrency behavior in some of those cases by not using Erlang. I mean, this is totally fixable. I think one of the most interesting ways to categorize any issues we bring up is whether or not it's something really fundamental to language design or runtime design or whether it's something that, you know, the right person and the right contribution could fix. This is one that's absolutely a, it's not there yet. But it's still kind of embarrassing, right? Because we talk about concurrency all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, the truth is, you know, the other place that I might consider not using Erlang is if there was some, you know, some use case that I had that just there was some tool in some other language that, you know, did just that. I mean, if you want to do a massive MapReduce thing, I might be tempted to use Hadoop. Now, could you have implemented Hadoop in Erlang? Yeah, probably, but they didn't. So it exists in Java. It works perfectly well from what I know. I mean, I'm not an expert on MapReduce. Uh, For sure. Or, you That's know, a- or, you know, statistics, you know, if you want to do statistics, use R. Uh, again, I don't know much about statistics. I have a friend who's a professor of stat- who's a professional statistician who I call when I have questions. And, you know, that's sort of where I throw my hands up. <laughs> but, you know, there are lots of other tools that do a good job of whatever it is they do that, you know, and, and it's not an either or thing. You can have part of your solution be in Erlang and part of it be in, you know, Ruby or whatever. You know, in fact, that's often a very valid way of doing things. Yep, so it would be, I mean, one of the other things about building a system out of multiple languages, right, is that, you know, I'd say another thing that some systems are certainly better at Erlang at is embeddability, right? If I want to put uh, something written in Erlang really embedded into another program, not just interoperating with it over, you know, local communication, um, you know, I can do pretty well at that with C. I can do pretty well with that at Lua and a couple other things. It's it's not really practical to do that with our line. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you wanted an embedded DSL, Lua does well. Uh, there's some scheme versions that do that well. There's some other things. Erlang, really not your best bet for that, probably. Um, you know, it's... it's I know of a barrier, uh, a language barrier. This 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 one doesn't scare me off, but uh, just to talk at something that does scare people off with the language, uh, it's around tooling. And so back what Justin was saying about uh, uh, the the places where you know if at the end of this, like all the things that are legitimate problems, if there was a to do list, <laughs> you know, so uh, maybe we should uh, make just, one. Just same with concurrency. Uh, uh, with with on tooling for uh on the IDE side uh uh you know there are a lot of people that look at Emacs and they say this is the best thing ever and then there are a whole lot of people that don't agree with that statement and it turns out that you know the the, the inside of the choir uh the early developers you know people have made peace with <clears throat> they either love Emacs or they've made peace with it <laughs> and uh and so i think that it's it's a more of a barrier to entry and more of a of an issue than than 
a lot of people want to admit, and uh, I, I, I see folks, they, they will dismiss this. And, and on one level, it is really silly. And, but it, it's hard to see what you're going to get once you make, <laughs> it, once you, 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 you get past that, you know, so you have to convince people that it's like worth them to invest their time. It's worth them to, to, you know, and the idea of someone having to jump into Emacs every day, uh, of, of their life is part of their job is something that some people are like, ugh. And some of us are like, <laughs> so, are so like, I'm going to actually kind of dismiss that or at least put it in the exact same category as people that walk away after 30 seconds with the syntax. Um, and, and I actually know lots of people that use other text editors besides Emacs and Erlang, but what I mean is the need for, you know, capital T tooling, meaning an IDE that does all your stuff for you. Um, <clears throat> Uh, just more of an integrated thing. It's, it's a lot of bodging stuff together and that's, that's fine. Uh, it, 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 it is, it, it just comes down to being a barrier. And like I said, this is, it hasn't, this hasn't kept me away, but it, I know well, it does keep people away. Well, uh, I mean, I guess what I mean is that with, go ahead, sir. Uh, thinking about the, uh, someone dropping out of Visual Studio and I'm not talking about Visual Studio just around like visual designers and things, because that's not the area where a tool like Visual Studio would even be, you know, it's like apples, oranges at that point. But when you're talking about like back end services where you, you don't have graphical designers and all the little gimmicks and things that are inside of Visual Studio, but it, just as far as like how fast the refactoring is, uh, how easy uh, the build process is, how easy uh to create uh, deployable packages, the organization, and uh, and that it's a rough thing. And and so uh, if, uh, two years ago, I reached out and I was trying to get people to submit uh, videos, post videos up on Vimeo of them using their Emacs rig. And uh, a few people were like, "Oh, okay, that sounds fun." No one did it. Uh, oh, and so I, I just I have, have one f- up on I have one up on YouTube somewhere. Okay, okay. So it uh, if. You know, even even seeing people's workflow, like the, when I've actually plopped down beside people, the workflow is quite a bit different from developer developer. So when there's not uh, so much of a standard, it's hard to say when you're having improvement. <laughs> you know, like how how can you improve the the experience when there's not when there's not a reference point is kind of the thing. And so within a company, I'm, I'm sure at Basho, you guys have a pretty consistent way, a workflow of working through and, and doing, you know, building and releases and, uh, and refactoring and, and all the stuff. Well, so the interesting that, thing though, there is that, well, so the interesting there is that I've found that with languages that I actually think that languages and the cultures around them come to require tooling or not. And so, there's not actually a lot beyond whether they do or not. So, for instance, I would put Erlang and C and Python just to pick a few examples, or Perl. Okay. In this, in this set of languages that a large portion of their programming community, but you know, considers the same tooling that they would use anywhere else, right? A text editor, the compiler, right? And then you know, and mm-hmm. we don't actually like. We, there are at least three different text editors, probably more, that people at Basho use. Whereas if you go into an IDE shop, right, which will typically be at most places that do a lot of Java, a lot of Objective-C, a lot of C++, something like that, everybody actually has to have the same setup because your IDE ends up doing things for you that won't work for the next guy unless he's <laughs> using the same IDE. Right. Yeah, I mean, true enough. My tooling, 
actually, this is, I think, a good topic for a future show is, you know, workflows and tooling. Um, just made a note of that. Um, is basically Emacs, Rebar, Git, and some, you know, Distel and a few, a few, you know, Emacs tweaks and actually sort of a project in the next few weeks is to improve it a little bit to integrate, uh, the unit from Rebar in with Emacs's, um, compile mode a little better. But, and there's a really nice mode, somebody did project mode where every time you hit save, it just runs a Rebar compile for you. Um, instead of fly make mode, so it uses rebar to do the build, so it finds all the various dependencies, which is really, really rather nice, because fly make never worked right, because, you know, it can't find all the various include files and whatever else it needs. Um, but, you know, that's sort of my workflow, and I literally, I just full screen Emacs on my Mac, and, you know, unless I need to switch into another window to look up something in the docs, I, you know, I could go for ages without ever leaving that screen. Um, yeah, if uh, a thing that would be very helpful, I think, uh, as far as adoption would like a company, it, it, say at Basho, if you have two or three uh, different workflows, different ways of working, you think, yeah, this is pretty productive or someone's you know, very proud of uh, the setup they have, uh, you know, document, push to get uh, to GitHub the Emacs D. And uh, and then a video of basically the workflow and how you go through the process. But, you know, it's really a funny thing. When I was getting started, uh, I had been, you know, banging around with just different sets of tools. Uh, and I, I came across uh, Kevin Smith's uh, pragmatic videos. Uh, and seeing the workflow he had in Emacs is like, oh, well, this thing actually does work. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, uh just even seeing how, how someone would go through the process, and I started using Emacs at that point. It had been entirely just out of other random editor of the day uh, kind of thing, and it, it you know just a lot of friction there. And so there's this only a certain – you only make it so far that way. Uh, no, but it, it, it's not so much that the tools, the various you know components you could put together don't exist. It's just you sort of have to know how to go out and find them, and it would be nice yeah. if there was – you know, yeah, if, there, if there's just sort of a library or encyclopedia of, of, uh, of like said, here, here's a way of doing it. Uh, we, we so, perhaps so we should do an episode on that and, you know, include all the links and gists and stuff in the show notes oh, and then people can, uh, can find them easily. Yeah. So, so would we summarize that reason to not use Erlang as just when people want or expect a, you know, culture of lots of tooling? I think so. You know, people expect, or, or even a culture of, or even like, uh, you know, is getting started. What is the best practice, or what? Is, you know, you know, this doesn't. Everyone wouldn't have to agree on this, but uh, it's like, what is a way of doing this that is uh, not full of friction? Uh, so, just on that constant search for finding ways of doing your day-to-day job that have less friction, uh, there aren't many models out there. There aren't uh, a whole lot of end-to-end projects. And so I think that's the thing that's so valuable about Kevin Smith. And I'll, I'll have a link to this of his uh, pragmatic series. Uh, uh, I think that helped a lot of people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, beyond learning about writing a chat server or anything like that, people that, that knew the language, knew the libraries, um, but they, they you know, were just struggling with workflow. <laughs> it's a funny thing. And, and it, it, if you're in a, in a company where you've got a lot of people around you, those things immediately go away. Uh, but if you're off on your own or uh, you're, you're scattered about, uh, it's it's a different kind of problem. And I think that sort of grassroots 
outside of uh, major centers, uh, that, that's one of the barriers there, I believe. The other thing about, you know, if you're outside a major center, although Stack Overflow and things like our podcast make this, you know, much better, is, you yes. know, if you work for a company like Basho or Airline Solutions or whatever, and you get stuck, you know, it's like, I don't know how to do whatever it is I'm trying to do, you know, for to get this, this piece of code done. There's somebody around you can ask. If so this was so much tougher about six up to about five or six years ago. And I would have actually said until the past few years, you know, one of the reasons to not use Erlang is, you know, if you're not basically at Ericsson or very much a self-starter, <laughs> yeah. um, it was really, really hard, right? I mean, when I started using Erlang, I was doing it on my own, using the only book that existed at the time, which was actually out of print. Um, oh, okay. And, this is before yeah, no, 2007 then, right? Before, yeah. Before our, yeah, the, the first version, yep. right? And... Uh, and it was hard, and I actually did a pretty bad job of it, and was a pretty bad Erlang programmer for a little while. Um, now I'm sort of maybe mediocre instead of bad. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, for a while, it was absolutely, you know, you're, it's really, really hard to get attention and help. I do think that, you know, it's still obviously the case that if you have a bunch of people right around you, it's much easier. But I would say that, you know, there's a much more vibrant community now than there was just a few years ago. And so now, yeah, you have to go out and seek it out, but it's there. Right. While yeah, it was yes. hard to find anything like that at all, you know, before the yeah. last five or six years. And now between Stack Overflow, uh, and Twitter, and, you know, everything else, mailing lists, there are communities of people you can reach out to. I mean, they might not be sitting well, there to you, but they're, you know, you can find them. Uh, there, you know, there are a ton of there are a ton of blogs, lots of people on Twitter you can hit directly. It comes down to the kinds of information that each one of these uh, these things, uh, the, the type of things that you share on Twitter, the type of things that you share in a blog post, uh, is one of the things that doesn't happen in there is, uh, and this is still not solved, uh, uh, is is this idea of the workflow and the tooling. Uh, that's just it, it hasn't been the the medium hasn't fit. Teaching that very well, and so I think that's that's just a nice one for us to hop in and uh, and, and start filling in the gaps. Yeah, I think that's a, a great idea, and we're gonna I'll try to find a way to, after Erling EUC to uh, fit it in. You're you're probably not gonna want me on that version of the podcast because I'm probably gonna end up pointing out that you know it's again much like you know say C or so on. It's <laughs> simply a language yeah. around which if you think that there should be you know, a small set of best ways to think about your text editor and all that, I think you're going to stay disappointed. That's what I meant by my summary of this issue. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't think, I don't think there's so much best ways to set up Emacs or Vim or whatever for it, so much as just here's a fairly, you know, if you can provide people a couple of good, fairly functional ways to start, Yes, you know, get yeah, them started. That, I, I think that's the that's the bar. That's you know, that's the only bar. Yep. And that you know, if you can set up such that yes, you got rebar, it'll compile, it'll run, you can check your program, you can do all this other stuff. You can show how to use Emacs and skeletons in Emacs, whatever. You know, people will fiddle from there and, and you know customize it for their own use. But just to get that first, that first, you know, your foot in and you know that first hello world program out the door. Is um, you know, kind of nice. All right, so let's move on to um, the runtime of the Beam. Is there 
Yeah, sure. So I, I've got a few things there, but um, I mean, one area that's you know largely runtime constrained is if you, you know if the expensive parts of your program require doing interesting mathematics efficiently, whether you're talking about matrix calculations or you know, there's a whole set of you know varieties of mathematics that Erlang can't do very well, or at least not very fast. Yeah. And a number of other languages can. And you know, for that class of problems, I would not even begin to pick up Erlang. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to do, you know, if you were the National Weather Service doing number crunching, I think you do it all in Fortran, or at least a lot of it. Right, and you, for instance, you can embed some of that stuff in other languages and in Erlang, but today, and this is the part of Erlang that could get better and needs to get better, um, you can't wrap up expensive computation under a NIF and have your program behave acceptably. Um, the scheduler, the, right? The right, yeah. right. so the, the combination of the way NIFs are implemented and the way the schedulers work right now. Um, so, for instance you can do ridiculously good numeric work in Python, right? Python's own implementation isn't good at it, but the numeric Python and scientific Python embeddings, which, by the way, are mostly written in Fortran at the bottom, um, are great. Yeah, I believe it. I mean... Yeah, this is sort of an issue of just the the runtime uh, being so good at that problem of time slicing because it got to set all the rules <laughs> and as long as everything plays by the rules uh, uh, nothing can block nothing can you know you, you have this extremely efficient thing you, you fall outside of that the interop whether it's to a NIF uh, doing something you know you can't guarantee you know you, you can't say hey C uh, play by the rules uh, at that spot but you also have the same sort of issues whenever you're you're trying to do any sort of uh, interop between say if you if you're using erlang as the glue uh so you you've, you've heard the story of like oh this thing is a great thing to distribute uh across systems and you're going to use it as the as sort of the host uh and maybe fire off worker things that are written in c to do video processing or something well uh that's all great but once you fall into that space then um you you have the sort of same friction uh that you have off with the NIFs, like you you the, the scheduling all of the <laughs> it's like you lose so much of the benefits there and it, it is a it's different like uh it's a different kind of chasm you're crossing than than with most other languages when you cross the chasm because you sort of have the same expectations in most other languages the run, early runtime is you know quite different and that, that that sort of hop is is sort of an odd one to figure out how it's going to behave yeah i mean if i had to you know do serious number crunching and wanted to use say the scientific the scipy library and so want to integrate with erlang my, my first instinct sort of would be to do something like you know put a queue you know be it rabbit mq or um the amazon queue service between them so that basically they're running completely separately and they're just passing data back and forth via a queue or an HTTP interface or something like that, that... Sure. And it's just know. a simple example of choosing not to use Erlang for the math. Again, you might write a, you might use choose Erlang for something else next to it. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the project I'm working on at work, the, the core of it is written in Erlang, but there are other parts of it that are written in PHP and the front end is written in JavaScript and CoffeeScript and 
there's probably going to be some Pearl in the next couple of days doing some some other stuff. So, you know, we got a bunch of different languages. Okay, the next thing is, so that's sort of the runtime is just, it doesn't, you know, math doesn't work well and it doesn't necessarily play nicely with C or, you know, embedding with other things. Um, I and just the just that the expectations are uh, are different with it. It's it plays by a different set of rules. You know, it's this whole OS right. where where other languages are, are pretty much living on top of whatever the host OS, and they're playing by the host OS's rules. Uh, and, and there's a but um, I, I think once understanding those, uh, you know, it, it, it's more of a, a cognitive hop. But uh, but once you you just have to think through, but that might be a bump in some things. Like just crossing the the, the boundary might might be expensive in some cases, or but I don't know. Uh, it's kind of hard. This is a hard topic to to say uh, when when not to use the thing you really like. Uh, I, I, I understand Justin's rules of like this can't t- turn into the glow show uh, for for Erlang, but it's it's it keeps on being hard to uh, yeah to, well, to steer that way. But for but I mean, you know, what, you're about playing, <laughs> what you're saying about it playing by the, the other rules isn't the whole story, right? I mean, Erlang schedulers don't work at this right now, right? It's not just that there's this, you know, wonderful other set of rules that other things aren't obeying. And this is the part that Erlang, you know, hopefully will get a lot better at pretty soon. But, you know, today it's not that there's even a right way to play by those rules for certain kinds of work. Right. You know, you couldn't make a say lack today in Erlang's with the combination of using, you know, embedding or NIFs and trying to get good concurrent performance. It there isn't a right way to play by those rules with today's implementation. So, Justin, in 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 the React thing, you have a JavaScript embedded into React, correct? Um, how did you guys do that? Yeah, yeah, we we do have that. Um, and it it's painful, um, right? We we have it there because you know this is exactly the kind of thing we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that you know our for our own engineers, you know, learning Erlang to do things is no problem. Um, but making a feature accessible to users, we shouldn't make them try to learn Erlang. And JavaScript is a language that's you know, a lot more people already have. I don't actually think it's any easier or simpler, but just in terms of people already knowing it, it's ridiculously more widely known. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why that's there. Um, so, you know, we embed the SpiderMonkey VM. Go ahead. I was just saying, as Crockford would say, it's tragically important. <laughs> JavaScript yeah. is tragically important. So. E- yeah. e- exactly. Um, and... You know, and like I said, there are cases where I think, you know, people are silly to care about those things when it's, you know, like I, every single attempt to, you know, quote, fix Erlang syntax is wildly misguided and wrong. Every single one of them. But for people that, you know, aren't actually interested in programming in this and just want to use a tool using something they already know, JavaScript is a pretty darn good lowest common denominator to shoot for. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, over the past few years, it's been worth it for us to do some, you know, some painful things to make that, you know, somewhat accessible to some people. Is it, you know, is it perfect either in what it allows people to do or how we do it? No, but it's a compromise that's been worth it. Um, the other way around, by the way, this is the lack in our language I was talking about before. 
wouldn't really be very practical, right? If for some reason I wanted to do it the other way around and embed Erlang in a JavaScript system, that'd be harder. I believe somebody did that and had an Erlang that would run in the browser. Uh, I don't know how well it runs, so I suspect the answer is not very. I think I saw that you could only have like up to 100 processes or something. So it's really kind of a toy version of Erlang. Uh, but somebody did it. <laughs> That's a crazy project. Yeah. Not sure why. Yeah, I mean, I, somebody did. I guess I don't think of it as Erlang without some of the functionality that the runtime brings. Yeah, but, basically um, Erlang syntax. <clears throat> yeah, it's whatever. It's, it's, um, it's a cute toy. Um, so the, the number three is the community, and that can be both you know, the community in the city you live in and sort of the global community. Um, and also, I guess, the ecosystem would fit in here as well, you know. the. So to, to be honest, I think that's the thing we've already spent the most time on. on this right. Been... You know, the ecosystem was sort of the other half of that, which, you know, the other thing that you sort of lack, and again, this is addressable, it just hasn't been done, is if you want to use some specific API or toolkit, like we were looking, using... Oh, I don't remember who it was. Some company's credit card transaction service. And, you know, they provide a, a Ruby gem and a Node.js thing and a Java and C sharp and a couple of the language, PHP probably, but not Erlang. So that's kind of like, okay, well, you guys sort of improvise there. Again, it's still. Absolutely true, right? By being a relatively, you know, lower adoption language than any of those. Less people do sort of that half of your work for you, and so you can't <laughs> as easily. No, I don't actually mean that backhanded, right? I mean, no, it, no, it that's a, it's a great point. Yeah, that yeah. it is harder to interoperate with other people's stuff if they don't have incentive to, you know, start it for you, yes. essentially. Yeah, I mean, we we were doing one of my colleagues at work was doing something today, and they're doing it in Perl. It's like text, you know, log log file processing or something. And he was able to basically, 90% of what he did was basically, or the task was just find the appropriate modules on CPAN and pull them in, and then, you know, write a little glue to stick it all together. Of course, that has a dark side too, right? I mean, yes, for, any, for anything you want to do, there are at least 10 modules on CPAN that do that, and at least nine of them don't work right. <laughs> at least some of the time, yes. Yeah. Um, that's not a good day. I, I, I've had times where there were 10 modules on CPAN and 11 of them didn't work right. Oh. I, I, I think I covered that case. <laughs> I, I'd say maybe, maybe a place uh, when not to use Erlang would be uh, if like, on the same same line is if there's if in .NET or if Java, if they can already do it very well or Ruby can already do it very well. Uh, uh, Go ahead, you know, you know, why, why reinvent the wheel or why port the wheel, uh, f for things that if, if they're very good in, in .NET, Java or Ruby or, uh, some other stack, um, <clears throat> they're obviously not hitting the sweet spots of Erlang because the things that are fit, fit in that sweet spot of Erlang are things that, you know, pretty much are lousy if you try to pull them off in .NET. Oh, uh, or sure, but all the languages we're talking about here, so Java and Ruby and Erlang, for example, are all pretty general purpose languages, right? So I, mean, I yes. sort of guess the point of this talk is to figure out what those its are, right? right. I mean, that it for which is better in one of those. Clearly, if you're doing, okay, you know, in the browser, you know, in browser front end stuff, you're using JavaScript or something that compiles to it. 
you know, I think it's a it kind of it's a weird mix whenever you're talking about web servers because everyone can make their case uh, there, and it'd be easy to make the case for Erlang, and be you know people would also be happy to make the case for other things. Uh, when you're talking about though on the front end, when it's not a web browser, you know there are still desktop apps out there, uh, and uh, that's that's a place where the story is just not not pretty uh, <laughs> for Erlang, even though the programming model. Would be great to have on the back, say, like in on on the .NET stack, you have WPF uh, for Windows Presentation Foundation, and so the Windows Presentation Framework. So you have this uh, great, rich framework to draw, you know, high fidelity apps that are responsive and all this, but you you're not going to be using Erlang in the back of that, uh, or directly behind that. You're going to have this layer of of C sharp or or F sharp or something, probably very likely C sharp because even the tooling for F sharp is not there. So, and if you're talking about Erlang to do the same thing, you've got uh, WX widgets. Yeah, <laughs> oh no, I, I I completely agree. Right? I mean, for uh for desktop layout and other elements of you know user interface for you know desktop apps. Uh, and mobile apps sure, as well, but let's talk about desktop. You know, you want good, strong toolkits for things like that. Um, you sure don't want every desktop app to, to look different on someone's desktop, and you want to have, you know, you don't want to reinvent how to make a menu box, right? Um, and Erlang has Erlang absolutely not got the richness of, you know, libraries and toolkits for that kind of thing that lots of other languages do. I think that, you know, its heritage is is all, you know, server-side and network devices and things like that, and it shows. And trying to yes. pull it to the desktop is hard. I mean, I, I was actually thinking that would make an interesting future show uh, Future show we could do. You know, but, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to do desktop, you're using Objective-C on a Mac or C-sharp on Windows or whatever. Um, but, you know, I would think that, you know what, if you wanted the concurrency of Erlang and sort of whatever Erlang properties, what you'd end up doing is, You'd write all the, the actual desktop app itself in C sharp, let's just say, and then you'd write in Erlang some stuff, some services that sit behind it as a server, even if it's running on the same physical yeah, that's, hardware. That's how people do it, but it's a real shame. Uh, it's on the, on the front end when you're building UIs that have a lot of things going on. Uh, there are places where uh, you, you say you have WPF and you have this rich sort of dashboard of like medical charts and all this stuff going on. Uh, or even if you're writing uh, like Microsoft Outlook. Uh, so in Microsoft Outlook, uh, people bash it because uh, it has these performance problems and people look and they'll say, oh, it has 250 threads open right now. And you can you can see this sort of tug, the developers that were writing it. They obviously wanted to have, they wanted to think about these things as, uh, these bits of logic they were doing concurrently. You know, they wanted, they wanted concurrency, but instead they had, you know, they had traditional stacks. They had, they had C++ or they had .NET. They had, you know, they had things under there that, that, that didn't offer them that. What they really would have ideally had, they would have had Erlang <laughs> with bindings, uh, UI bindings. And, you know, but that's a huge project for someone to take on that, for Microsoft to take on because it, you know, they have this sort of ambiguous relationship with, uh, with, with Erlang. They, you know, they, they learn from it, they like it in ways, but they're quite not, sh not quite sure how to integrate it in with, with, right. <laughs> with the rest of it. But it would sure be nice to have, uh, for those bindings on, on UI. It, it, it's not millions of concurrent processes that you'd need, 
But, you know, you got like several thousand and you could have some apps that would behave completely differently. If you could design in the, the maintenance would be so much easier if you could break up. But unfortunately, you can. So it's this place where you can't use Erlang, even though the language itself would be great. It just doesn't have the UI bindings. Right. I mean, and the truth is, there's no reason you couldn't have the UI bindings except for the fact that that no one's written them. No right. one's written them, and to, to do them and to do them well would be a massive project that you'd need somebody on the scale of a yep. Microsoft or an Apple or whatever. Yeah, this is yeah. this is absolutely in that category of it's not that Erlang is fundamentally unsuited to this task, or even that the language is currently broken about this. It's just no one's written this particular thing yet. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean, and you do have things like. Uh, WX widgets and TK, the TK widget bindings, which, you know, are not pretty and I wouldn't use them for something that I was showing to customers, but like if you go into the Erlang AppMon viewer or something, you know, App Monitor or, or the table viewer and look at your, uh, ETS tables, that's what it's using and, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's ugly and looks like it comes out of the mid nineties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the mid, the 1994 called it once it's GUI back. Um, um, but, you know, those are useful enough tools. I, I use both of them today for one thing or another. And then, of course, things that are deep down in, uh, in in a particular stack, like I probably wouldn't be whipping Erling out to create Word documents or Excel documents uh, or to, you know, to, to do a lot of tight integration with Microsoft SQL Server. And so once you get inside of an ecosystem like that, then it's maybe, you know, it's like, all right, well, just go ahead and use the tools where there's the least friction uh, right. uh, for those as well. And again, uh, going back to our earlier point that, you know, there's sometimes when, you know, your your good solution is you have Erlang sitting next to something else that's, you know, through a queue system or through some other intermediary system where, I, I think that, you know, you have something else, you know. You know, most of the work is happening in Erlang, but, you know, you're using something in C-sharp to generate mm. Excel files. That's, that's going to be a productive space, I think, uh, in the same way that, you know, like if people could get more uh, just workflows, videos of, of workflows out there. But then the other is thinking about, like, proofs of, of how you interrupt with systems. You know, just sort of sh- saying this isn't the way you always have to walk this road, but here's – Here's how I walk this road. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and just more examples, uh, help, help give people confidence that, uh, you know, to, to bring this into the mix. Uh, uh, the, what's one of the sides of the, the primary thing I do in the Erlang community, I guess, is going out and talking to groups of .NET developers and getting them to think about the fact that they could use this thing alongside their .NET code. They could use this inside of their Windows shop. They could, you know, and, uh, that's always the the biggest thing is like, well, how how do we how do we do the interop? Right. And you know, there there's a series of stories there, but it would really be nice if uh, if if we would spend as a community uh, more time reaching into and, and building building interop bits instead of saying, oh well, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> you know, that'll be the job of you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just need the the. You know, somebody to put up a blog post or, you know, a five minute screencast on, on, on YouTube to say, you know, we want to interrupt A with B. Here's how we did it here. And there are other ways to do it. But this is, you know, this is how we solve the problem so that somebody else can say, OK, well, I know how they did it. I'm just going to go with that. And, you know, um, I'm about to integrate we're about to do something like that at work where we're going to pass data through 
from Erlang to a queue system over to Perl to do some processing that just mm-hmm. is there. And, you know, the processing could easily be done in Erlang. It's just the guy who's doing it doesn't know Erlang particularly well. Or he does it well enough to read my code, but not well enough to write his own. And right. I'm trying to, he, he will eventually learn Erlang, I'm sure. But he's not. But we got to ship the product to a, our first customer on like next Wednesday. So he's probably not going to learn it between now and then. So, you know, it gets written in something else for now. And it can always get, it can always get moved into something, you know, it's a small piece of code. It, it can get, it will get moved later, maybe, or it won't, you know. Hmm. Oh. It, it does feel a lot like uh, uh, the the answer to the when not to use Erlang comes down to a lot of when there's still a, uh, there's still a dirt road when you really need a paved road <laughs> or when there's no road at all, there's still trees, uh, uh, you know, it's when not to use it. And that just comes down to work. Uh, that just comes down to work from people in the community, people that, uh, to bring in as far as like filling in those gaps and, uh, and, and paving some roads. Uh, Look, you know, the truth is Erlang has amazingly good tools and things in it to do certain types of things. You know, Riot Core, from what I can tell, and Justin actually, I will be digging into that in the next few weeks, um, <laughs> from some of our product probably. Some of the Ryak stuff is amazing. Um, some of the eJabberD stuff is amazing. You know, Web Machine, um, Web Machine totally rocks. You know, there are other things. A lot of what, you know, OTP, a lot of what Ericsson has done. But all of those, you know, were sort of aimed at solving certain types of problems. You know, the Outlook, the Outlook problem that you were describing earlier, you know, the people who were doing Erlang weren't trying to solve that kind of problem. So, it never got solved. Yep. And so, so I think since we're you know, at least most of the way through, I'm going to put out one last from me, more straightforward, when not to use Erlang, you know, that I think is in the less fuzzy category, which is times that you, the nature of the problem you're solving, the, that you would like to have strong type system help you assert things about your program. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of some of the things that, you know, the, you know, dynamic typing of languages like Erlang can get you when you're building programs. I also think that there are times when a good static type system, uh, and when I say good, by the way, uh, neither C++ nor Java counts as having a good type system, um, but um, can help you to say things you might need to say about your program, either to yourself or your customers. And, you know, Erlang's, you know, type system makes that not straightforward, right? There are a bunch of tools that let you do some of the same things, right? Like Dialyzer. Dialyzer is a fantastic tool. And if you don't know, that's that's probably my one link for today, Zach. I usually don't give you any, but All right, yeah. go, go read the Dialyzer docs if you're writing any Erlang at all. And you can actually make some assertions of the same kind you'd like to make with a type system. Right. It's, um, it's still not Haskell, but it at least gets you some of it. Yeah, it lets you make, you know, assertions in that class, generally. It's different from having a type system built into the language, but it's pretty darn useful. Um, still, there are times when having a real type system, like Haskell's, like you said, or like OCaml's, or, you know, is actually really yeah. useful. And at those times, Erlang's not there for you. I, I will admit, I don't know Haskell, and I know I know a little bit about Haskell, and I know almost nothing about OCaml. 
except for that the book Real World O'Camel is in the works from O'Reilly, but I don't know when it'll be out. Well, to not try to introduce to either of those, but try to sort of make my point is fundamentally, when you're talking about a real sound type system, um, which has very little to do with whether or not you have to type things before your variables that tell you what type they are, <laughs> um, that when you have one of those, what you essentially have is a proof checking system. Correct. Right? Your entire set of assertions about your program are a proof, and your type system can check to see if it's telling it say, saying something true. And it can be really useful to know whether things you'd like to claim about your program are true. Right? Type systems get one set of such things. Not everything. Right? For instance, I can only do in Erlang or Haskell today because they're the only two places with a working quick check implementation that lets me make certain classes of claims that overlap with but are not quite the same as those that I can get out of a type system. Yeah. Um. Quick checks and I think I need to sort of learn about how to use at some point. I've done a little reading, but haven't quite gotten my head around how do you actually build a useful, you know, useful tests in it. We'll have to do that in the future. Uh, this is a really interesting uh, conversation on on types. Uh, are you all familiar with the uh, the idea of pokeyokes? Uh, uh, not at okay. okay. So th- these are like mistake proofing uh, techniques, and so it comes out. It, the word is one that comes out of Japanese manufacturing, but but the idea, the concept is is would be familiar to anybody. Like you think about manhole covers, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're round, so that no matter which way you turn them, they won't fall down and crush whoever's inside. <laughs> and uh, as you're going into a parking garage, you'll have the sort of bar that hangs down, and it says seven feet clearance. And you know, before you go in, if you bump the plastic bar, you know you need to stop. And so, uh, like these, these things that, that keep a, a terrible mistake from happening before, right at the point it was about to be committed. Uh, you know, th- that's this concept here. And, uh, that's a, that's one of the places where languages actually compete as languages. A lot of times it's the stuff back in the back, like the frameworks or the runtime or that sort of thing. But languages can compete on these, on this idea of the, of the Pokeyoke. And, uh, one being like, Manage memory, you know, is a is a great mistake proofing device. Uh, Erlang is full of of these mistake proofers that 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 aren't there in, in other places. Like we we have things that make it safe uh, uh, to do you know lo- location transparency, the stuff of the distribution primitives, uh, uh, the concurrency uh, model in Erlang is much safer, you know, with the message passing and so on than if you're trying to do the same thing in, with threads and, and C++. So you have these mistake proofs, but that is one, of course, the type system where, you know, dialyzer adds some, but, but you, you still, we're, we're lacking a pokeyoke that conventional languages, like if you're looking at C sharp or F sharp or Java, you know, they have type systems. F sharp actually really nice. You know, I guess it, it gets something from the OCaml <laughs> and uh, Haskell uh, folks that were working on building it. But uh, well, my understanding uh, about F sharp is that Don Syme, who created it, and Simon Peyton Jones of Haskell fame have adjacent offices at Microsoft Research. So I, I, I think they're like two or three doors down from each other. Something, something like that. that. Yeah, so. I mean, but <laughs> really the two of them speak on a daily basis about how these things work. I mean, one thing I do for that sometimes, especially with time things, is, you know, like, whenever you need to put a time value in in your program, you know, wait five minutes or whatever, you know, the sort of the, the native form would be put it out as a number of milliseconds, 
and I have a little library and put a gist up of it somewhere so they can find it. That instead of that, you basically have a tuple that, you know, a number and the second element is a time unit, second, minute, hour, whatever. So you can say, you know, five comma minute, and then it'll turn that in. So there's a couple of advantages. First of all, you know, you have the advantage that when you come back to your code six months later and you see in your config file five comma minute, you know, you just know off top, you just know that it's a time interval of some kind. I mean, you might not know what it's used for. Mm. You know, at least yep. some goofy <clears throat> millisecond, you know, of yeah. the milliseconds is seven minutes that for some reason somebody decided was a good number for a time basically interval. Basically tag, tagging your way to getting uh, units of measure, which would be a strongly enforced thing in, in, in like uh, F-sharp or O-camel, right? Right, you know, but also, you know, if you're, <clears throat> if you're doing, you know, it's like, it's like when you're doing, you know, high school physics or college physics, you know, you, your professor always tells you to put the units in. So you mm-hmm. can use tuples with an atom to... uh Put the units in, as it were, such that that you know it has a couple of advantages. First of all, it just makes it easier to just read your code later uh, for somebody yourself or somebody else. And so you know you can say, oh, okay, you know, seven kilometers, you know, km. Okay, well, you know, you know, clearly a distance for some reason. You know, you know, you can hopefully figure out why you have a distance there in the context, but you can at least see you know what type of thing it is. Um, and of course, then the other thing is if you're pattern matching on your function calls to that kind of thing, then if they, if the patterns don't match, you know, your code goes, you know, your code doesn't work, mm-hmm. you know, and you can sort of catch it real fast. So that's another good practice. I should, should do more of that. Justin, I wonder, did, were there any of the, the things that you all are not using Erlang for at, at Basho that you, that, that we didn't cover so far? Cause, uh, that, I, I really, that piques my interest at the beginning. Yeah. What, what it, sure, I mean, so we covered a few of the places where it's hurt, I think. Um, but, you know, I, an interesting example of where not to use Erlang is, is one that you pointed out before where there's a great ecosystem around something. If you look at the newest, uh, search and information retrieval system being built, uh, which is currently codenamed Yokozuna and being led by Ryan Zazeski. Mm-hmm. Um, that's using React itself for data storage and React Core for request routing, but it's using Solar for all the search stuff. That's Java. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest reason there in this case even though, you know, we end up having to, you know, go out and speak a protocol to this thing instead of, you know, just embedding it neatly or something like that, hmm. um, is that we're not going to go make a better solar than solar. And solar has gotten <laughs> a heck of a lot better in the past few years and has a great community making it better, right? If it was yes. abandoned where or something like that, we'd have different incentives. But, you know, we're not a company that's built ourselves around being, you know, the best at building information retrieval and search indexing. And the best software out there at that is not something that, you know, comes with Erlang or or can easily be, you know, embedded and wrapped up inside Erlang directly. So we use mm-hmm. Solar itself um, in that project. I mean, that yeah. makes sense. Um, I mean, obviously, you've got some stuff that's in other languages. You know, it's like client APIs for React and stuff, but that's more you're trying to fit into the, you know, the Ruby because, you know, you got a Ruby gem to work with the Ruby folks. 
the people. Sure, that's an example of the flip side of what we talked about before about people, you know, going halfway to others to help them interoperate, right? I mean, the solution we really took there is that all the best interop is by using protocols, not APIs or SDKs. Um, and so React exposes to its clients a pretty neat, clean, well-documented set of protocols. And then in order to reach out halfway and make it easier for people to adopt things, of course we write, you know, client libraries in all kinds of other languages like Ruby and Java and so on. So people don't have to go and learn that protocol since it's not what their job is about. Um, and in some cases, when we haven't done that reach halfway yet, you know, we've had people do it themselves when it was worth it, right? So, you know, for instance, the corrugated iron guys, you know, brought it mm -hmm. to the .NET environment. We don't really have much, you know, in-house Windows development going on here, so it didn't make a lot of sense for us. It made sense for them, and they did some good work. You know, I mean, one of the things that I, you know, that makes, you know, that in, in the modern day and age about any programming language is just the community, you know, Who's building, you know, how many people out there are building stuff for it? You know, you have, um, you know, you guys over at Basho are building all sorts of cool stuff for, uh, for Erlang, be it Rebar or Web Machine, React. You know, other people are building, you know, we just lost Justin again. Oh. Um, other people are building other stuff. I'll just edit these dropouts out before I publish the podcast. So... Um, yeah, okay. So. Uh, Justin, one, one other place that <clears throat> I'm curious about. Uh, I was going to say, one thing, Justin, that I'm curious about is, uh, uh, we haven't talked about this, but is even on the platform. Like, is platform a reason not to use Erlang? Um, and so I'm thinking, like, you know, EC2, you're A-OK. -okay. Uh, on Azure, up until the VM, uh, the VMs became a thing that was offered there. It was a, kind of a tricky, uh, tricky proposition, I think. Uh, you all have surely been working on, or maybe even have it up. Uh, but do you run uh, React on on Azure? Uh, we run on Azure now that Microsoft recognizes that you don't actually need to run Windows to do that. Um, yeah. There's a big right. Azure means anything Microsoft wants you to buy now, right? It doesn't actually have to mean Windows. Um, uh, well, you know, of course that you know those series of pods that they have scattered around <laughs> the, the no, big no. chunks of hardware is the yeah. Let's just uh, put it. But in I mean something specific, right? You can use the Azure cloud stuff. Uh, sure. So I was answering uh, Brian's question. Oh, hold on, stop for a second. Um, Sure. So the platforms that Erlang runs on hasn't really been an obstacle for us. Um, we've, you know, we, we don't run on Windows with our own software. I'm not actually talking about Erlang, but everything we do right now, mainly because we haven't seen the demand to drive us to go and do, you know, qualified Windows builds of our stuff. Since, you know, you can even run on Microsoft's Azure Cloud running on Linux now. Um, we could get it running there if we had the, the need to. It's more about everything else in our system that assumes some things like, you know, that are fairly Unix-shaped, right? And so we'll run on Solaris, on Linux, on FreeBSD, and all sorts of things. It just, from our point of view, this isn't an Erlang limitation. It's that it hasn't been worth it for us to spin up really Windows-specific build and operational expertise, Um but that's been less about Erlang and more about the rest of the product for us. 
Um, mm-hmm. All right. With all the audio um, and Skype problems we're having, why don't we just sort of end it here, guys?